Lord Almighty, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for allowing us to hear your word. God, there are so many fears and frustrations and and just normal things that are trying to distract us from hearing your word. Help us to hear you speak to us through your word. Help us to be shaped by it and to rejoice in you. God, bless us this morning so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Early in my tenure here at Grace, one of our former members wanted to get to know me. This particular person lacked a sense of personal space. What normal people see as a threat, fortunately, I correctly saw as friendly aggression. A kind of, how comfortable are you in your skin, Pastor Greg, idea. (laughs) I have no idea what he's doing now during this COVID crisis. You'd get punched in the face for getting that close to somebody with or without a mask. But the right response then is to gladly get back in their faces and physically and, and even verbally. And when done with the right heart, that person will respect you and they'll even be friendly with you. Now, the people around you may have their skin crawling, but he remains a friend today even though he moved away from Santa Maria several years ago. Of course, there are other times when getting into somebody's face is a means of inviting intimacy, joy. Now, there are very few people I will allow to do that, but of course, I love it. And lastly, there are those for whom getting in your face is a means of intimidation, force. You will comply or it will not go well with you. Now, our psalmist today embodies all three of these tendencies at the exact same time. Our psalmist today is unmistakably getting in your face. Unapologetically getting right next to you. He is not giving general advice on what to wear during this weather. Our psalmist wants you to listen Our psalmist wants you to pay attention. Our psalmist today is fiercely urging upon you to be happy, to rejoice in submission to Yahweh. There is, of course, this sense of love and intimacy that is being offered. There is a friendly aggression. And there is a hint. No, actually, it's more than a hint of threat. If you are not happily submissive to Yahweh, it will not go well with you. In Psalm 2, God responds to the rebellion in the hearts and actions of the nations of the world. And He scoffs. He mocks our foolishness. He threatens punishment. And he invites us to fellowship with him so that it may go well with us. In fact, you should notice this reality in both Psalm 1 and 2. Most readers of the psalm, if they think about it at all, recognize that Psalm 1 is an an introduction to the Psalter as a whole. 
in Psalm 150 then is a conclusion. But Psalm 2 is every bit as much a part of this introduction to the book of Psalms. These first two Psalms taken together introduce many of the major themes that we find laid out throughout the Psalms. Flourish. By delighting in God's word is the big idea in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, the big idea is to flourish as we rejoice to serve. Or else, we must imitate the psalmist's fierce, joyful submission to the Lord. The proper response for us to God is to plead urgently, fiercely, perhaps even violently in the sense of John the Baptist. John the Baptist sought to compel his people to see the glory of submitting to the Lord. Now allow me to read what I believe to be Jesus' expression of the general idea found in Psalm 2. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. The idea that the kingdom of heaven might suffer violence strikes us as odd. God is all-powerful. How could any attack mounted by men be a threat? Well, of course, it's not a threat. But that doesn't mean people will not react violently against God. When I'm wearing my bee suit, bees will attack me violently, but that doesn't mean that I am harmed. People will oppose the kingdom of heaven. People will violently oppose the reign of God. People don't want to be where God wants, where what God wants done gets done. Now I, alas, remain all too often in opposition to God's kingdom. I desperately want my kingdom to win. I want it to be the most important in my life and in the lives of those around me. Which is why the violent must take it by force. If I am to enter the kingdom of heaven, I must fight. I must be fierce, violent even, against my own sinful desires. I must be fierce against the desires of Satan. And I must be fierce against the desires of the world that he is the prince of. My friends, why should it surprise us that we must fight temptation? Jesus says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Even allowing for hyperbole, this is violent language. Let it not surprise you that you must fight to live a godly life. Let it not surprise you that the world fights you fighting it. And as always, fight temptation using the right tools, not swords, but bended knees and joyous lips. Don't fall asleep in the pews thinking, oh, I can do whatever I want and I'm good. I've got my fire insurance. 
No. We must be fierce in our joyful submission to the Lord. Now, I don't know if Jesus had Psalm 2 in mind when he uttered these words, but the ideas here are definitely related. The nations, all 7.8 billion of us, rage. Let us burst their bones apart, bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. Therefore, we must be equally forceful, equally fierce in our imploring those near us, as Paul says, be reconciled to God. You, Christian, are in enemy-occupied territory on this earth in this age. You will need violence in the sense of active refusal to submit to the tide of ungodliness. That tide of ungodliness is all around you. And if you are to swim upward, upstream towards heaven, you must be fierce in your swimming. You must be fierce, perhaps even violent in your use of means of grace that God has given you. Now, we must understand something about this ferocity. We must understand about this violence. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not guns and bombs and swords. What are the weapons of our warfare? Our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what are those strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our fierce fighting is against the lying arguments and against the deadly affections. The lying arguments of our mind and the deadly affections of our hearts. Arguments, reasoning, pleading are what the psalmist and Paul and Jesus and even Isaiah urge us to use violently against ourselves and those we love. Isaiah chapter 1. Come now! Pay attention! Let us reason together. Let us think rightly, Isaiah says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If... You are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Them's fighting words, folks. We need to pay attention to what is going on in our own minds and hearts so that we will not be left behind. Now I'd say we're ready to tackle our psalm. Let's look together and see how ferocity and joy, happiness, and even intimacy can fit together when pursuing joy in the Spirit by using the means of grace He has given us. The first point we will come to in our text is that rage against the Lord is in vain. I'm going to read Psalm 2, verses 1-3. through Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
the first question that we need to ask when we come to our text is, how is it that people vainly rebel against God? Well, it begins in the heart. And for many, perhaps, it stays in the heart because the person is too scared to let it out, to let their hatred of God be seen by others or even themselves. But it is there. And God is not fooled. More damaging to the individual and to the culture is the rage that plots and carries out war against the kingdom of heaven. Politicians can quote or misquote the Bible verses in order to virtue signal to their constituency about their honesty or goodness, but they remain solidly opposed to what is honest or good. And it has been common for thousands of years to note that there is a rage, a violent opposition deep in the heart that has been the center of the war of the king, on the kingdom of heaven. But we can all think of examples of people who are sweet as honey who opposed God. The rage in this case doesn't need to be outward. The rage is often buried beneath the surface, often because the person doesn't want to admit they have it. Those people are often the people who are sitting right there in the pews every Sunday. Might that be you? The point is, here in Psalm 2, Not to say that everyone who opposes the kingdom of heaven turns into some rage monster or incredible hulk. The point in Psalm 2 is to say that deep inside, those who have not been born again, in them lives a heart of rebellion against authority, which is why you and I must rejoice to serve. What will it look like to rejoice to serve the Lord? First and foremost, it means to fight sin. That sin that you've known about for years, decades. Choose to fight it. Use the means of grace available to fight. Start with prayer. Ask God, help me. Ask Him to reveal which of your temptations you must fight and then wage war against it. Decide when that temptation comes, you're going to reject it. Maybe what it means is to get up, move, and go away from wherever you are. That might be a strategy. Another strategy for you might be to turn off your computer. Hmm. What would it look like to turn off your internet? For some of this, for some of us, that fierce Submission may be the most joyous, the sanest joy-making decision you will ever make. Because your temptations promise you happiness and freedom and they deliver despair and frustration. Rejoice to serve God, not your favorite flavor of sin. So we find that rage against the authority of the Lord is folly. Resistance is futile. Why? Because the Lord is in control. Verse 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God mocks. He scoffs at those who try to oppose him. He's not worried, folks. 
You know, some people believe they're doing God a favor by putting a $20 bill in the bag as it's passed. Some of us wish we could sit where the bag is being passed. Amen? But the only safe place from the wrath of God is right at the side of the king. Note, the king, God, is sitting. He's not stressed out enough to get up off his throne. So he mocks. And then he says, I will speak to them in my wrath. This is a clarifying sentence. The king sits and he mocks. And I I suspect that what's going on is happening in two stages. Two different steps. God is saying, okay boys, I'm mocking you. I want you to see that I'm mocking you. You ain't going to win this one. And if you keep going, if you keep traveling down this road, then I'm going to speak my wrath. King is still sitting. Not breaking a sweat. He's not worried. All the kings of the earth fighting against God, he's just sitting back. I think he has a cup ice-cold lemonade, Arnold Palmer with some tea put in it. That, by the way, will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Those who see danger approaching are wise to take cover. But I want you to notice something else. There is a difference between his wrath, God's steady, unwavering opposition to all sin, and his fury, his white, hot, burning anger. For whatever reason it is, God is patient right now. He is not showing us his fury but he is allowing open rebellion in this world. He will not always. And when his patience is spent, his fury will manifest itself. I have been asked by my friends of a politically conservative position if God's wrath will fall in the United States because of our participation in the abortion genocide. I respond by noting we are already experiencing God's wrath. I have been asked by my friends of a leftist persuasion if we will experience God's wrath because of our participation in various wars and even the whole military-industrial complex wickedness. I respond by noting we are experiencing God's wrath. Now, I will leave it to you to discern which aspects of the American culture are expressions of this wrath, but I suspect we have not yet experienced his fury, his burning anger that results in widespread death and destruction that has happened to many cultures over and over again throughout history and of which we tasted a few times in the last century. My friends, consider how terrible the wrath of God must be that He poured it out on His own Son. Consider God's wrath 
is such that He will pour His unwavering hostility towards every sin on every sin ever committed on His Son. God will destroy that sin. God will obliterate that sin. He will spend His wrath on every sin by every one. Now by God's grace, through the great mercy of God, He has offered you and me a choice. We can remain accountable to that wrath and remain spiritually dead until the day that we are physically dead, at which time we will experience the full, unbridled, undiluted, unmitigated wrath of God separated from Him forever in hell. Do not so choose. Turn to God. Turn away from sin. As we have seen, the safest place from the wrath of God is in His arms. At the side of the King. The safest place in the universe is embracing and kissing the Son in humility. This is the other option. To kiss the Son in humility. To receive the gift of God through the death of Christ. Who, while He was on the cross, drank the cup of the wrath of God for every man, woman, and child who would ever put their trust in Him. Oh, praise Jesus. Seriously. Praise Jesus. This is a gift that we may never even know the bottom of. And the only question worth asking is how can we avoid that wrath? Trust in the promises of God for you in Christ. And when you do, you will rejoice to serve. So taste and see that the Lord is good. He deserves your fierce, joyful submission. Your fierce submission. You must be willing to cut out everything that does not fit with your, de your decision to submit to the Lord. And you must rejoice in your submission. You must desire to be submissive to the Lord. And this joy is something that He gives you as a gift when you submit. It is only in surrendering your times and your talents and your treasures that you will find what it is that you really need and you long to have the love and joy and peace of God the Spirit in your life. And this will come. Why? Because we will recognize that the Lord's rule is a gift. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The question we must ask here, of course, is who's speaking? Who is it that says, I will tell of the decree? Now this needs a little unpacking. There have been at least three audiences for this psalm. 
One, those who lived under the Davidic monarchy. And two, those who lived in Israel, but after the Davidic monarchy had ended. And those who now live in the Christian era. Now clearly it seems the psalmist is putting these words into the mouth of the Davidic king. One of David's sons was king of Israel and is a son of Yahweh and therefore he is given the right to rule. That seems pretty straightforward. But then it seems out of place at a time when there is no king. So following the deportation to Babylon, the Jewish readers of this psalm must have understood it as the Messiah in whatever form they viewed him as. And this Messiah would be the one who would speak these words. Now, for Christians, we see the Messiah. We see the Son of David. Jesus is of Nazareth. And He is the one who is reporting God the Father's promise to Him. Jesus is the heir of creation. Jesus is the judge of the nations. Jesus is the ruler of the souls of all. And Jesus has yet to ask the Father for his inheritance. Oh Lord Jesus, please ask. Oh Lord Jesus, please come quickly and redeem your people. Which, of course, brings up another question. Which heritage, which possession is going to get smashed? He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So who is it who gets the fury and the rod of iron? And then, of course, what's the alternative to being smashed? Well, those who are being smashed are those who at the beginning of the psalm plotted in vain against the Lord and His anointed. Those who will meet the business end of the rod of iron are those who were scoffed at by the Father in heaven and ignored the warning. One day, the Father will ensure that everywhere is the kingdom of heaven. So be fiercely joyful in your service to the King. Rejoice to serve. Rejoice to serve. Find joy in turning to Him. Now, my friends, we have spent a lifetime rejoicing to serve the various idols that we enjoy. Every man, woman, and child has a flavor of sin that they love to go back to. Train your heart by going to God's Word, by going to Him in prayer, by going to other people who are training their hearts to grow in love and delight in Jesus. And when you do, you will serve the Lord in fearful rejoicing. Verses 10-12. through Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord, rejoice. Fear, trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The psalmist is commanding us, be wise. 
Live rightly with respect to how the universe really is. Be warned. Note carefully that you must walk in a way that keeps you out of danger, out of the path of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. And he says, serve the Lord with fear. Make sure every morning you are in a right relationship with God. Make that the first thing you do. As George Mueller said, the first and great primary business which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And so he explains how he did that. He would go to God's Word. He would get on his knees and he would search for it. He would pour into it and find a promise that he could cling to that day so that his happy heart could be happy in the Lord. But clearly he says, verse 11, rejoice in the Lord with trembling. Now this also needs some unpacking. What does fear and rejoicing have to do with each other? Well, go back, because I spent more time on this topic last week as we looked at Psalm 1. You can find that psalm online, that sermon online as well. But I want to emphasize I want to reiterate that this verse is aimed at every child of God in every age. The fear of the Lord is the fear of putting yourself into a wrong relationship with God. Now this is not a cringing fear. This is not a fear mixed with despair. This is a fear that will enable you to do anything that it takes not to disappoint your Father in Heaven. Then, once you have this right relationship with God, you receive rejoicing. This experience of peace brings flourishing, health, life, attractiveness, fruitfulness. Joy then also brings trembling. That fear that I might do something stupid and throw mud in the face of Jesus. Now what on earth does that mean? How would someone throw mud in the face of Jesus every time you and I sin? Every time you and I value something that is contrary to what Jesus values. Every time you make Jesus seem less valuable to those around you, you make people think that Jesus isn't really all that important or precious or glorious. You do something stupid and you throw mud in the face of Jesus. Instead, the psalmist commands us to kiss the Son And this embrace implies an acknowledgement of all three of the motives for getting in someone's face that we noted at the beginning. There is, of course, a friendly, playful aggressiveness. I think we're going to be wrestling with Jesus when we get to heaven. Of course, he'll always win. I think that there is a loving intimacy. This kind of language is shot all through the Bible. And There is an intimidation. If you kiss the Son, you acknowledge all three realities at once. If you believe the Son to be wonderful, you will rejoice to kiss Him. If you believe the Son to be terrible, you will be forced to kiss Him. In either case, what you believe will be correct. So embrace Him today. Get to know Him in His arms 
today so that when you're forced to be in his arms, it will be a rejoicing. Now there's one more consideration that if we don't take with us, we will fail completely to understand the psalm. Christ, on the cross, bought for you the power and the promises you need to obey these commands from the heart. Worship is the fierce, happy submission. Worship is joyful service. And so we must rejoice to serve. You, today, can turn in fierce, happy submission to Jesus because He paid the penalty you deserve to pay because of your sin. And when you turn away from that fierce, happy rejoicing, you can go back because He's paid for that sin as well. Your sin and mine have separated us from God. And God took it upon Himself to bring us back to Him. If we trust in His promises to do so from our heart. And trusting in His promises, as we learn in this passage, it's spoken of in different language in other passages, but in this passage, trusting in His promises means we turn away from something violently, fiercely, away from our sin and the temptations around us, and sometimes violently, fiercely turn towards the God who is our only source of life. And in Him we find this source of life and we rejoice. We are able to rejoice in a way that we have never been able to rejoice when we trusted the lying promises of whatever flavor of sin we enjoy. So celebrate the good fortune you have to have such a gift and rejoice to serve the Lord. Jesus, thank You for buying on the cross the power and the promises that we can trust so that this could be made progressively true in our life. Make it more so. Help us to turn away from our sins. Help us to turn our hearts in the morning to being happy in You so that we will rejoice and we will bring glory to You and growth to Your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.